0: You are tuning into Pro Bono Perspectives live from Brooklyn, where the city never sleeps and purpose is more than just a buzzword. Pro Bono Perspectives brings together leaders that have traveled across sectors, industries, and experiences on their path to creating change for the communities in which they live and work. And I'm your host, Danielle Holly, CEO of Common Impact, a national nonprofit that designs skills-based volunteer programs that amplify the impact of social change organizations by harnessing the talents and the skills of private sector employees. I am lucky enough to cross paths with these leaders every day through my work with Common Impact and can't wait to bring you behind the scenes to share their stories. COVID has highlighted and exacerbated so many of the inequities that exist within our society, from healthcare to housing to education. This month, September 2020, children across the country are heading back to school in an entirely new world. And for many, that means setting up a desk in their homes and sitting in front of a computer as teachers bring their lessons plan and their curriculum to a virtual environment except so many children don't have the computers and the broadband they need to access their classrooms and their education. The digital divide, or as some call it, the homework gap, it's deepening as technology moves from being an amplifier of education to being an absolute necessity. According to a report that was recently released by the Alliance for Excellent Education, more than 30% of Black Latinx and Indigenous communities lack high-speed internet in their homes, and more than 15% don't have a computer. That means more than 17 million children aren't going back to school this year. So this month, on Pro Bono Perspectives, we're talking to educators, corporate and social sector professionals that are trying to bridge this divide. Today, I am joined by Dana Castro, who serves as Worldwide Education Manager at HP, which is one of the world's largest technology companies. Through her work, she puts into practice her belief that access to a quality education is a fundamental human right, and she has dedicated her career to bridging the digital divide. Today, she shares the depth of that divide on a global scale, how a company as large as HP has managed to pivot so quickly its operations during COVID, and shares some of the nonprofit partnerships that have helped shape their work on education equality. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dana. It's great to have you here.
1: Danielle, thanks for having me, and I'm just really excited to share our story with your listeners.
0: Let's just get to it. Education inequality has long been an unfortunate truth in the States and around the world, but it has taken COVID-19 like so many other inequities and fault lines in our society to really bring it into the spotlight and uh, to get people to pay attention and to understand that right now, as we're all really relying on technology, that there are deep inequalities and what resources different students have and educators have, and would love to hear, since you're so close to this, what your version of the impact on the pandemic on
1: underserved students has been. Yeah, it's an incredible um, situation right now, and it's, it's really interesting because literally at any moment from anywhere a crisis could occur, We've all experienced some of that Um, locally. It's a tornado, a flood, an act of war. So on these local levels, we know how to respond to disasters. Um, However, the coronavirus is very different. It is global and it's inclusive. And just for some context for your listeners, um, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal number four, it's titled Quality Education. And it reported that before COVID, over 260 million students did not have access to a quality education. So the size of the, the amount of students that, who are underserved is already huge. But with the spring closures of schools, a mind-boggling 91% of students globally did not have access to their schools. This is a galling 1.6 billion students. So never before have so many children been out of school and at the same time disrupting learning, upending lives, especially those that are most vulnerable and marginalized. So this pandemic not only spotlights the inequalities, Danielle, but it is also exasperating it because not every student has the technology and the access to technology to learn from home. And I have three examples of that. We've seen these three stark barriers for schools and universities who are being faced with these barriers as education is moving remotely. So in the U.S. alone, a study last year found that as many as 41 million Americans still lack broadband access, believe it or not. And so there are millions of kids um, today that don't have access to online education because they simply don't have a Wi-Fi connection. And then on top of that, um, because it's all cumulative, is one in three students are without a laptop. And third, um, there's just a prominent need for teacher professional development and instructional design um, support in order to move quickly from face-to-face classes to online. So this culminating effect of these three barriers is known as the digital divide. Um, Sometimes people call it the homework gap. And this has become the major crisis in education um, where leaders from across industry are grappling with. But it's also a time um, where we're innovating alternative solutions and programs, which um, we'll probably discuss today.
0: Well, and when you think about what this means, not just for access right now, but for the foundation that it sets for children in the future, right? Like kids who are missing their first or second or third grade education right now, that it's not just about a lack of access or a deepening lack of access this year. It's about the long-term opportunity that will be in front of these kids. It just, um, yeah, you use the term mind-boggling. It really, it's just hard to get your arms wrapped around how impactful that is. Exactly. Tell us how HP is thinking about this, right? Like if as a company who is looking at its role in a challenge that is this large and now
1: growing, how do you think about your role? It's a great question. Um, And HP being a global uh, company, we really have the arms um, to put around this. Uh, But before I go into HP's specific role in education um, as a technology company, I think it's important for your listeners just to know a little bit about um, this company and our heritage. Um, So HP was founded over 80 years ago um, as a technology company. Um, Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard, our founders, they actually met at Stanford University. And the outcome of their academic research project turned out to be HP's first product sold. And the reason why I say this, Danielle, is as HP was founded from within education, our role in education has been rooted from this corporate citizen DNA. And so doing good for society was something our founders cared deeply about 80 years ago, and they were ahead of their times. It was part of uh, something that we refer to at, at HP as the HP way. So naturally, our company's purpose is to create technology. That makes life better for everyone everywhere, in particular for education and support of the UN uh, Sustainable Development Goal number four that I mentioned earlier, quality education. Um, At HP, our mission is to enable better learning outcomes for 100 million people by 2025, and so far we have reached 28 million people towards that goal. One of the examples of Our most popular program to enabling these better learning outcomes for that underserved community population that we're talking about, which is just growing now, is called HP Life. And HP Life, it's a free program from the HP Foundation that provides these business and 21st century skills to entrepreneurs, small business owners, lifelong learners. Um, You can find it online at life-global.com. We've also built centers around the world. Um, where this access to technology may not be in the home like South Africa and in Mexico. And so since COVID um, has happened, we've really seen a growth on this platform. Um, 126,000 people from around the world signed up and are taking some of our, we have 30 courses that we offer. So this is just one area with a program that was before COVID that we were really able to tap into to help individuals as they're looking to reskill and educate to start a new life. Tell us about
0: Turn to Learn, which I find such a fascinating program. And we're going to, in the second half of this podcast, talk to Justin Van Fleet from GBC Education, really tackling education inequality, and would love to just hear a little bit more about how that works, how you think about it as a success.
1: Yeah, Turn to Learn is a phenomenal program that came out from the this crisis, this pandemic. So in education, um, we know that learning happens across multiple modalities. For example, we learn by reading, by writing, by making and doing. And while building an ecosystem for online learning is the top priority for schools, a laptop simply um, being central in that online learning ecosystem has limitations. And so the students that are particularly impacted by this are primary and elementary school students. These young students are not digital natives yet. They don't know how to type. Um, And so they're really struggling on a PC-based learning ecosystem. And it was that segment of students that really um, helped us uh, get to the point of uh, launching Turn to Learn. Um, So HP went to work building this collaboration With these rich learning content providers like NASA and Britannica and Times for Kids. And we've taken their content and we're delivering paper-based learning booklets to students in Title I school districts around the country. And so in just a few months, schools have ordered over 225,000 booklets and worksheets that we deliver to them. And so that now, and, and now that this program we, we've done the beta and the pilot and the alpha all in one shot um, to bring it to market and so now that we've figured out how to get the distribution of these um, booklets we're so happy to share with your listeners that we are working to scale HP turn to learn to Canada and to Haiti schools Haitian schools as oh, well wow. so, um, it's a really g- incredible work by uh, all the change makers at HP
0: well I would love to hear how you move so quickly, right? Common Impact has had the same experience. In the context of COVID, we've had to very quickly pivot our programming to target what nonprofits need right now. And we had to move really quickly, as you said, right? Right. From Alpha Beta to Pilot to Go. (laughs) And Common Impact is a relatively small nonprofit organization. Mm -hmm. So it it requires effort, but you could see how it's feasible. At a
1: company as large as HP, what does that look like? That's a fantastic question. I would say there's two um, pieces, um, two, two main ingredients, especially when you work in education. Um, one is we have extremely passionate employees that care deeply About um, education and playing a role, um, especially in these marginalized um, societies and students in need. And the second part um, about education is is around who we surround ourselves with, so the partnerships Um, and everything we do is is not going at a problem alone. Um, We go at the problem together. And so another important collaboration is this work with Global Business Coalition for Education that was inspired and led by former UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown. And as Justin will talk about, the the Global Business Coalition for Education is a movement of businesses committing to ending the global education crisis and unleashing the potential of this next generation. And so when I mentioned earlier that education runs deep in HP's corporate citizen DNA, In fact, the HP's president of personal systems, Mr. Alex Cho, is the board member for GPC for Education. And so it's like this type of collaboration where we teamed up with this organization and we're able to provide technology to students impacted in cities like Houston and Chicago and Dallas. And then we also worked with the Oakland Unified School District to provide its students and teachers with equipment as well for the, the shift to remote learning. So it really, um, our ability to respond, um, to answer your question, is around passion and your network. Um, and then we just go for it, <laughs> break all barriers and go for it.
0: Make it happen. Yeah. So what are some of the education trends you've seen so far? I mean, we're just at the start of this new school year. What do you expect to see as kids go back to a digital classroom or can't go back to a
1: digital classroom? That's the case. <laughs> yeah, that is the question, right? Um, and it's this, you know, continuing adapting to what's ahead of us, this new normal people refer to. Um, so for this academic year, we're seeing schools um, exploring this hybrid learning model in and out of the classroom, in and out of online, and then also um, a, a complete remote learning model And so as such, you know, we need to be aware and we need to continue embedding inclusivity in our strategy So, like, what can we do to help every student learn and learn in a very safe way? So that is a question that we ask ourselves as we um, innovate um, for this uh, future that's ahead of us. So, you know, these are trying times, but, you know, I want to leave your listeners on a very positive note. Like Our company founders, Bill and Dave, would say in a time like this, do the right thing at the worst time. And so what we've seen over the past few months is a demonstration of the progress that's possible when we all come together to deliver innovation in education. And so technology to improve the online classroom experience, we refer to it as classroom of the future, is really being put in the forefront. And so it's the acceleration of this type of work um, that can really advance education for everyone everywhere and really get to serving um, to meeting um, the UN Sustainable Development Goal number 4, Quality Education for All, and for HP to reach our goal of 100 million learning outcomes five years from now. So before we
0: hit record on this podcast, you were telling me about You started telling me about the work that you're doing and it, it sounds like, while it's a challenging time for you. It also feels particularly meaningful and impactful right now because of the size of the challenge that we started out with. So I would love to hear for you as you go through these days, what is your favorite part of the day? What's the best part of your day?
1: Yeah. So, um, it has just been, These last few months, as hard as it has been um, to support our customers and our schools and our universities during this time, um, there are so many everyday uh, change makers, HP employees, who have rallied together to really bring new programs like HP Turn to Learn and others. Um, We didn't get a chance to talk about HP Refresh. We have a new grant support program to help schools um, find alternative funding for their future. We help parents with a program called Print, Play and Learn. We have a Be Online program that helps our teachers um, build their skills for remote learning. But really the best part of my day goes back to our discussion on collaboration. And collaboration has many forms. um, And the one which I personally appreciate most is just being there on the phone with them, um, helping schools, universities, even parents Solve their most pressing technology and learning issues. And it's even at the very practical, tactical level. Like what I do each day is I block three hours from 8 to 11, and these are my office hours. And nobody can come into these office hours unless you're a school, a university, or a parent. Um, and this dedicated time to keeping my door open for any educator um, really keeps me grounded and centered. Um, And I thank these educators so much for being so vulnerable and sharing their issues and brainstorming together and being so creative in our problem solving. Um, They are the ones that keep me motivated. It keeps others on our team motivated to do the work, um, the hard work that's upon us all. So as much as this new normal feels like a marathon with back to school looking like mile six of 26.2, It's really not. Um, I tell you what we're on is really a new journey and it's about redefining this classroom of the future. And I am just thrilled that I can can play just a small role in that, um, Danielle, and to share this with your, uh, with your, all your listeners.
0: What an incredible investment of your time um, to the mission. I really, you know, you and I also, before we hit record, was talking about when you're in Uh, leadership role, often you get more removed from the work. And so you've got to figure out ways to connect. And that just sounds really like an inspiring and as you said, grounding way to connect. Thank you so much, Dana, for joining me today. I feel like we just hit the very, very tip top of the iceberg on this incredibly large issue, but just so appreciate you sharing with our listeners the work that you're doing every day and excited to hear also from GBC Education on um,
1: how they've partnered with you and
0: the impact it has made on them. So thank you again. Oh, thank you,
1: Danielle, for giving us this platform and for doing all the good that you're doing. So it takes takes a village, as they say.
0: We've just heard a lot about HP's inspiring work in education and the digital divide from Dana Castro. Now we're heading into conversation with one of their partners to get their take on their work together. Justin Van Fleet is the executive director of the Global Business Coalition for Education, which brings the business community together to accelerate programs in delivering quality education for youth worldwide. GBC Education was founded on the belief that education is the birthright of every child. And in his role as executive director, Justin champions that belief and encourages companies to invest in education as a way to foster stable, prosperous, and healthy communities, promote economic growth, and make it easier to do business. Today, Justin shares with me a little bit more about GBC's partnership with HP how COVID could mean that millions of children are never going back to school, and what role the private sector can play in making sure that that doesn't happen. Welcome, Justin, to the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks, Danielle. Great to be here.
0: So let's start with your career. You have worked for a series of fascinating organizations, organizations that I think a lot of our listeners will know well, the Council on Foreign Relations, the UN Special Envoy for Global Education, Clinton Global Initiative, and now GBC Education and their world. And you can really see the um, the connective tissue behind what you've done. But tell us about your career path, your roles, how it got you to where you are today.
2: Thanks. It's, it's really interesting. Um, but for me, it all goes back to grade school, actually. Um, I grew up in... Rural Appalachian in Western Maryland, a little town called Cumberland, Maryland on the border of West Virginia and Pennsylvania. And I remember in grade school that there would be foreign exchange students that would be staying in town for a year. They would come by during show and tell and do presentations on their countries. And I thought that was the coolest thing. And I always wanted to be an exchange student ever since I was in the third or fourth grade. And so when I grew up and I was high school age, I, I went to apply, and the costs were were, were pretty steep. Um, and so the community sort of pitched in. I did fundraisers, um, and and sort of we, we mobilized enough resources so I could apply for this program. And I wrote, I'll go anywhere in the world. I would just love to learn to speak Spanish. And at the end of the day, I, I get an acceptance letter saying, you're going to Bolivia. I had no idea where Bolivia was on the map, and I went from one Rural mountain towns to another rural mountain town in the Andes for almost a year. And that was the first time in my life I saw young people my age who did not have the same opportunities I had. I thought that everybody went to school. It was just a normal thing that every kid did. And that was the first time at the age of 16, it took me until that moment to realize that, that actually not every child does have the opportunity to go to school. And I thought that was so unfair, so unjust, and that always stuck. With me and so in in the work I did in undergrad and you know what I was studying um, and the careers that I was sort of drawn to this this always this, this issue of the right to education always was sort of core to me and I remember googling when I wanted to go um, on to grad school um, right to education master's degree and a program came up in international education policy and I had no idea you could actually study this issue that was so um so fascinating to me and something that was so important to me. And so I went on to study that and then everything I've been working on in the various organizations you mentioned has always been really focused on how can we ensure that every single young person, no matter where they're born, what zip code, which side of which border, um, whether they're in poverty, have a disability or a girl, a, a minority, that they have the same opportunity to make the best future possible through education. And that's really what's been driving me. Um, through everything I've been doing in in work ever since then.
0: Well, and now those inequities that you're talking about are in a public spotlight because of COVID-19, right? Where the broadening digital divide, actually, it has increased the number of kids that can't go back to school this year, right? Um, And has opened up those fault lines even more broadly at what has been your exposure to that what are you seeing there
2: and i think it's really interesting a lot of people talk about how covid has highlighted people that were on the margins of society first responders restaurant workers grocery store workers um, public transport workers but at the same time it's pushed so many people on the margins even further to the margins if we look at pre-COVID, we had already 260 million young people out of school, and based on what was happening in the world by 2030, only one out of every two young people would have the most basic skills to be able to enter the workforce. And add COVID on top of this, it's pushed over 1.5 billion children out of school, um, their families have had to try to find new ways to learn, and simple things like access to a computer access to broadband a parent who's able to stay home with you um as you're learning at a young age all of those things have made a difference between whether a young person has the opportunity to continue their education or whether they've been further excluded from education and some of the estimates now show that there are 30 million children in school who may never go back because of covid because they're so marginalized and and the 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 sort of hurdles are, are too great to be able to overcome to return to school
0: what can you talk about some of those hurdles because i think most folks are thinking about this as a moment in time issue right like right now these kids don't have access to broadband and laptops but or chromebooks or whatever it is but once COVID is over and we go back to "Quote unquote business as usual." Those kids will go back to school, but that seems to be a really flawed assumption. Tell us about why. What are those barriers that this could be a much longer term trajectory for those kids?
2: When we think about some of the most marginalized young people on the planet, one group is is refugees to start there. Refugees, displaced children, and and one of the statistics that's always stuck with me is if you're a refugee and you're out of school for one year, you are fifty percent less likely to ever return to school. And I think it's that same impact that we're seeing roll into other marginalized groups. Um, If you're a young girl who's been out of school, in some countries around the world, you may have been um, married off and subject to child marriage. Because of economic hardships, families may be making choices where their children actually need to work to help the family survive, and they won't be going back to school for those reasons. If you're a child with with a disability, it just might be a little bit more difficult. To either get into school or to continue with your studies and all these layers of marginalization are really what's making it more difficult for people to return um, and if you are sort of just barely sort of hanging on and did get to school and making the most of it this could be the thing that sort of tips you over the edge where it's just not worth the effort to return because of so many uncertainties and so many difficulties people find that there are other options out there for them to sort of get on with their, with their lives
0: it's just devastating to think about, you know, to your, um, the story about the start of your career, like the basic access to education being taken away from kids and this making it even worse it just highlights, um, the importance of the work that you're doing before, um, this conversation we talked to Dana at HP and know that you have had a strong partnership on the Turn to Learn program, which is fascinating to hear about. It's tell us how GBC Education is thinking about the solution to this, or part of the solution to this, and how your partnership with HP is uh, making that work.
2: Yeah, I think one of the one of the really interesting, <laughs> the most fascinating part of this entire discussion around education and, and COVID is we know what has to be done. It's not a great big mystery. We know that if you're learning remotely. You need to have access to, to broadband or to internet. You need to have some type of device. Teachers need to have training and support and professional development. You need to have a meal um, so that you can learn. All of these sort of wraparound social services, it's not a great big mystery what has to happen. And it's not something that's so expensive that we can't actually deliver it. It's just the the issue of political will often comes in. And there's so much to do right now with with education being disrupted for 90% of, of school children across the globe, um, it's a problem that's bigger than any one country, bigger than any one company. And that's really what we're trying to do at their world of the Global Business Coalition for Education is bring together every partner around this common vision of ending this education crisis and having everybody take the part of, of, the, of the puzzle that they can solve and that they can contribute to. And HP is one of the companies, it's a founding member of our Global Business Coalition for Education. They've been working with us for years and years. And every time that there's been some type of crisis or situation or an opportunity to to make a difference in how education is delivered, they they consistently step up with some of our other companies and say, we can't do everything, but here's what we can do. Here's where our skill set is, our expertise, our products, our services. How can we be of, of help? Um, and so we did some work with them really early on in the crisis, um, partnering them up with organizations where we could deliver some of the, hard, the hardware devices to marginalized children in, in Houston, Chicago, Dallas, a few cities in the U.S., so they could actually have the tools they need to connect and, and continue their education online. We've done other work with them in refugee camps in, in Uganda using their digital cloud technology to deliver, um, learning, um content and so we've we've partnered in a variety of different ways with hp um, and it's that that idea that all companies have something to offer when it comes to solving this crisis and everybody has something to learn but everybody has something to teach and contribute as well
0: well and you know common impact spends a lot of time thinking about what is the private sector's role what can corporate employees do to help support movement on some of these issues and the partnership that you're describing is a great example of the, of the marrying of expertise and exposure and knowledge. And would be curious, it sounds like you have a lot of other corporate partners that you're working with. What do you see as the role for companies on this particular issue? Where do you think they're uniquely positioned to help support and address some of these deep inequities that we're talking about?
2: I think because this is an issue that's affected so many people, it's it's something that everyone has been affected by by education, whether it's your own children, whether it's been nieces, nephews, neighbors. Everybody's seen the impact of, of COVID-19 on 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 education systems and, and access to quality education. And I think a lot of people that work at companies and companies themselves are saying, what can we do to be part of the solution? And I think that's great. I think it's fantastic. I think the the part that's really different is that it's not just about money. People typically think, oh, companies, let's go ask for a donation. But it's really about everything a company can bring to, to help solve these challenges. It goes beyond philanthropy and funding, which, yes, is, is is important as a part of it. But the employees, their skills, their talents, their resources, the technology, um, the goods and services that companies can provide to help solve some of these these issues the people, volunteerism, getting people and communities involved in public education is so important. And it's also looking at how companies can actually bring all of these um, diverse assets that they have to, to be part of this solution. If we think about the different ways different companies are responding, even in their own internal policies with what are they doing to support families and, and parents that may have kids that are, are home and, and need to be homeschooled currently? Um, what are other policies they can have around hiring practices to help bring up um, opportunities for young people who have traditionally been at the margins of, of opportunities when it comes to the world of work and the workforce? And so companies have so many ways that they can engage from their own internal policies to what they do as a business to the people and their expertise that I think the the sky is really the limit in terms of how creative companies can get when it comes to playing a part in solving the global education crisis.
0: Right, and when, what you're talking about is, it's not a philanthropic strategy, it is a business strategy, right? Meaning to look first at your own internal operations and business practice and ensure that that equity mindset is permeating through the culture and that they're also looking outward and thinking about how to invest and support their communities but that i think one of the um one of the important parts of what you just said is that the community is not separate from corporate employees right Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, that many of them that are struggling are employed by these companies and that um, companies can also um, think about employee practices and supporting their employees as a way to progress on some of these issues.
2: Exactly. And, and I think the the main takeaway for me is you can have a social impact and also have a business impact. And philanthropy is great. It's nice. It's very important. Um, but it's not the only thing. And then sometimes it's not the most important thing a company can do. Um, there's so much more that companies have to contribute to their employees, the communities in which they, they operate um, and, and to their consumers and, and the broader global community as well.
0: So what comes next for GBC education and their world I imagine that this has placed additional importance on the work that you and your team are doing and also additional pressure what what does the next couple of months the next couple of years look like for you
2: That's a great question the part the statistic that sticks with me is that if we fail to Quickly help the most marginalized young people that have been out of school um, and have had their education disrupted. This cohort of young people growing up during COVID could face ten trillion dollars in losses of future education future earnings simply because of the lack of provision of education. And that statistic is shocking, and it also comes at a time when we should be investing more in our education systems. That education's really on the chopping block. We're facing a global recession. There's limited revenue from taxes because of the the shutdowns that have been taking place for public health reasons. And governments are making tough choices about what they're funding. Companies are making tough choices about where they're putting their their money and their resources. Foundations are going to have smaller endowments. Aid budgets are shrinking as, as countries start to look more inward as opposed to externally at their role in the world. And with all of these decisions, education stands to, to be cut. And I think the biggest challenge for us is how do we ensure that education is not cut, but in fact, invested more in, um, because it really is the key to solving so many issues. If we want to solve this public health crisis, we need to invest in education. If we want to solve the climate crisis. If we want to promote peace and security, economic growth, job creation, education is the key to unlocking all of these different social issues. And at their world and the Global Business Coalition for Education, we're really going to put the marker out there that education is the number one priority if we want to recover from this pandemic. And we need everyone to lean in and do more and not um, do less at such a crucial time in history.
0: It's a obnoxious question I ask, right? What happens in the next couple of years? <laughs> because nobody Exactly what's going to uh, unfold as we come out of this crisis. But I think what you have shared is it's a call to action for what we need to address, you know, that this could set an entire generation of children back if we don't invest and roll up our sleeves together and focus on education, because you're right, that is the foundation for so many of the societal challenges that we're seeing, Mm -hmm. right? from equity to climate change to the digital divide. Tell me before, um, before we wrap up, what is it like to manage your team right now to manage such important work and um, be the leader of an organization? What does that look like in COVID?
2: I'm, I'm so fortunate to have such a great team of people with such energy and passion for what we do. And I think that's that's so inspirational to me is to work with people that wake up in the morning and all care about whether or not young people have opportunity and whether young people are able to go to school. And we're not physically in the office together, um, but we're all connected over um, Zoom conferences like everyone else is in the world. And I think the interesting part is because we have folks in London, folks in New York and other places around the world, it actually has brought us closer together in some ways, that we're all participating in these conversations digitally, but we're seeing each other more often. Um, we're having to get more creative um, in terms of our solutions to these challenges. And because the education crisis is something everybody's affected by, I think it's, it's really energized us even more um, to, to, to work even harder um, during times like this for what we believe is right and what is just and how we can actually help advocates around the world, have the tools and resources that they need to help us make the case for education. So it's, it's been a really challenging time for everyone, but it's also been a very inspirational time. And, and, and we're, I'm so proud of our team and being able to work on a topic like this. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be honest.
0: What is the best part of your day?
2: <laughs> the best part of my day, I think, is really when um, when we get reports from some of our project partners, And it's the story of someone whose life is different because of a partnership we formed, because of a project we started, because of a report we wrote, which led to some policy decision that unlocked change. Anytime that that you sort of get that feedback loop, um, because when you work in policy, sometimes you feel like you're a bit disconnected from reality. um, Or when you work in New York, but our projects are in a refugee camp in Lebanon, you feel a bit disconnected but um getting those individual stories of of young people of teachers of administrators who have been able to do something different have been able to have a different opportunity or a different chance because of the work our team's done is really i think the best part of my day when those emails and stories and videos and messages come through well, that that's the part that i really enjoy
0: that's so grounding right it reminds you while you're doing the work that you're doing i uh was telling you know in my role right now i uh, so infrequently get to be in the program meetings and meeting our nonprofit clients unless I do so really intentionally. And uh, every once in a while, I get a late night email to say, here's how Common Impact's work has changed our organization or professional, Mm -hmm. and oh man, uh, you know those two lines are a year's worth of fuel for the work that we do.
2: You know, that's just, when you think things are getting tough or difficult and you get a message like that, it sort of lifts you up and it, it puts everything back in perspective, I think is really refreshing.
0: Indeed, indeed. Well, Justin, thank you so much for joining us today and for giving us a peek into your career and your work and the incredibly important call to action that you're you're asking us to rally behind. It's uh something that we're thinking a lot about here at Common Impact, how can we activate companies? And um, I think this has been incredibly helpful in shaping that discussion. So thank you again.
2: No, thanks so much, Danielle. And I'd like to give an invitation to you and to any of the listeners out there. On the 21st of September, it's the UN General Assembly Week, and normally world leaders come to New York City. Um, But this year, we're taking New York City to everyone out there through a through a digital event that we're hosting on unlocking big change and how education can be the key to all of these social issues we've discussed. So if anyone wants to learn more about the different topics, um, they're more than welcome to join and they can go to theirworld.org to sign up.
0: That's fantastic. And we'll send that link out with this podcast. And as a native New Yorker, I love the idea of bringing New York to the world. <laughs> thank you again, Justin. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to Pro Bono Perspectives today. If you like our show and want to learn more, check out our website at commonimpact.org. Leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues about us. Tune in to our upcoming episodes to hear from everyday leaders using their skills to help their communities.